The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this evening I want to continue on the series of talks that I've started. Uh, uh, this will be the third talk on the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the um, one of the most common reference points, uh, descriptions, of the path of practice uh, in Buddhism. And uh, it's quite comprehensive and in that it involves a variety of different aspects of our lives. The uh, tradition likes to divide it into three components. That part of the path that has to do with ethics, our integrity, and how we live together with other people. The part of the path that has to do with meditation, training our mind, developing our mind. And the part of the, the path that has to do with developing wisdom. And a, a big part of Buddhism is the wisdom tradition, which comes out in the th- last third of the training. A big part of Buddhism is the compassion training, which comes out in the mi- first part, the ethical part, it has a lot to do with compassion. And then, um, and then what kind of bridges those two and allows them to kind of be integrated and connect and grow from each other is the cultivation of the mind-heart, that's the samadhi, the meditation part. And um, it also kind of integrates and involves um, cognitive and emotional and aspects of our life. It involves aspects of our life that um, are more personal, kind of in, inner, your inner internal life. And it also involves our, our social life, our act, you know, life in the world and our communities, including our work lives. So it includes, includes speech, includes actions, includes our intentions, includes how we see things, the perspective with which we see our world. So it includes a lot of different things, so it's kind of comprehensive. And so since the time of the Buddha, this has been used as a reference point for finding one's way in the Buddhist path. So today the topic is the second of the Eightfold Path, which is right intention. And um, the Pali word is sama sankapa, and sankapa is the word that's translated as intention, and it's uh, probably a fine way to translate that. It literally means thinking. And so it may be more like a way of thinking, but it's come down to us as, especially um, in translation, as intention. And um, so in in talking about it then, I want to tell you a story from the time of the Buddha. Um, Or at least one that's said to come from that time. It's hard to know from these ancient texts how much of them are really true and how much of them are stories people made up. But it's a good story. And that is, uh, it has to do with a, uh, a king and a queen, Queen Malika and King Pasanadi, who were, were royalty in the time of the Buddha, rulers of the time of the Buddha. And, um, and the king, Pasanadi, perhaps he was, the tradition shows him as being a little bit dense, a little bit um, good, you know, not good natured exactly, but you know, well-meaning, but a little bit dense and a little bit maybe full of himself. And so he goes to his wife one day and says, um, dear, who do you hold as most dear? Who do you hold as most dear? Most, uh, and she says, um, uh, and you know, the expectation is that she's going to say, well, you, of course, sire. And, um, but uh, what she says is, says, um, I hold myself most dear. So this doesn't go over so well with the king. So they decide to go visit the, the Buddha to talk about this conversation they've had. And, um, and they explained the, explain the, the conversation and what, what they said and what she said. And the Buddha says, um, that's right. She's right. The queen is right. 
everyone holds themselves most dear. So this story has been taken down through the centuries, down to the present moment, as being that it's appropriate for people, it's a, it's a appropriate and valuable, uh, uh, meaningful thing for people to uh, love themselves, to hold themselves dear, to respect themselves, to care for themselves. Uh, that uh, the Buddhist path is not one of neglecting oneself, denying oneself, uh, ignoring oneself, but rather involves one that has a high degree of respect for oneself. That's what the, you know, the path involves in some degree. I know that some people don't have that self-respect or that cherishing of themselves, but the hope is that uh, two things. One is hearing that that's, there's a world religion that, that holds that up as an as a important value. It certainly becomes a nice alternative to something like you know, that we originally are, have original sin or something, which is a formative view for many people in the West that somehow we're inherently wrong, something's bad. And in Buddhism, it's kind of different. That's more like, more almost like, Buddhists wouldn't say this, but almost like not inherent sin, but inherent goodness. And so the idea we can, we can uh, you know, this idea of respecting ourselves. And so then how do we care for ourselves? How do we respect ourselves? How do we um, support ourselves? How do we care for ourselves the best? And um, I think the answer in Buddhism is not so much about what, who we are, but rather how we relate to ourselves, how we relate. What's important in Buddhism is how we are, the relationship we have, the response we have to the world that we live in. And so, um, um, and so that works like, uh, so um, it doesn't matter your status in life, it doesn't matter your job, your trade, your, what matters uh, is how you treat people, how you treat yourself. Do you act kindly? Do you, are you, um, do, you, do, you speak, do you speak with love or kindness or honesty? Or do you speak with deceit or with manipulation or unkindness? How you are is what's really important. And so the same thing in Buddhism around ethics. Uh, if, if someone has done an ethical transgression, done something that's hurt someone, um, uh, that's not held against you. Like, oh, like now you'll be, you know, you're a terrible person, you'll be terrible forever. But rather, um, the, the, the question is, given that this has happened, now... How will you respond to it? What, how, how will you be now? Will you make amends? Will you confess? Will you apologize? And most important, are you committed to uh, doing better in the future? And so rather than being weighed down, rather than being weighed down by our past, the idea in Buddhism is we learn from our past and then we're forward-looking. How can I do better? So this how, how can I be? is very important. So more than what am I, how how am I is quite important in Buddhism. In fact, what Buddhism says, um, there's no really good answer to the question, what are you? I mean, you can come up with one, but it's not a really good place to hang your hat and get attached to and kind of insist on. Um, But what is important is something which is more dynamic and therefore not always as easily available and you can't, you know, uh, you know, it's more like a moving stream in a sense. Um, but the question is how you are. And how you are is something you're going to encounter every moment of your life. The next moment, how are you going to be now? Given this, what are you going to do? So the how. And so built into the how, then, is uh, the intention with which we're going to do something. Uh, what, what are we intending? What's motivating us? For what purpose are we doing something? Is our intentions ones which are supportive of others, are supportive of ourselves? Are they helpful for others? Are they helpful for ourselves? 
Do they undermine other people? Do they undermine ourselves? Whose good do they have in mind? Whose good are they intending? Uh, what are responses? And this, in terms of holding ourselves dear and respecting ourselves, caring for our intention, paying attention to what the intentions we live by is a really important factor. And, um, and looking for that, understanding it. So I found, I found it in my own life, in my own practice, extremely important and valuable to uh, spend a lot of time reflecting on what my intentions are. There was a time in my early years of practice where I spent probably at least a year um, uh, asking myself regularly the question, what is my deepest intention that I want to live by? What's the intention I want to go by? And until I actually took it on up as a practice to reflect on that, I had never really thought about it that deeply. I might have had kind of an easy answer I could have given. But what I found was when I started asking that question every day, kind of reflecting every day, that uh, I started kind of probing behind the first answers, the second answers I had. And I started dropping down into more fundamentally important intentions for what I wanted. Um, and I found something very interesting out. I found out that if I, those days where I stated my intention negatively, I would like to live without fear. That, that's a nice thing, not to live without fear. But um, it doesn't help you very much, that intention, as a deepest intention for your life, if you succeed. <laughs> um, and so, I, and what, what I found to be a more useful ask question is, to, or approach around intention, is to always kind of try to find an answer that's positive, not negative. Not the absence of something, but the presence of something. And so, you know, if, if you could, for example, live without fear, then what? What's your intention then? And, um, and so then it might be, for example, something like to live with love or to live, uh, live a life of, um, of generosity or activity or support of the world or act in the world in some, some way. Um, there's a different answer we get that's more active and engaged if we have a positive answer to the question of intention than a negative one of, one of absence. And it's not uncommon for people to come with a negative a- response because often because they're struggling in their lives. There's intention. Just to become free of that is very meaningful. But a little bit, we might be shortchanging ourselves and there might be even a deeper answer. So I found it very useful to go through layers and do this kind of over and over again. So what is the intention? And how, how is it that paying attention to intention is a way of caring for ourselves or respecting ourselves? I, one of the answers in Buddhism is that intentions are, are really matter that the intentions you live by shape your character. It shapes kind of who you are. It shapes your, the unfolding of your life as it unfolds. And different intentions, if you live by different intentions, whatever the intentions are you're living by, that's going to be consequential down the line. So if you live, um, so, I mean, this is a story I may be told too many times. When I was um, just being trained to be a, a teacher in this tradition, I was sitting in on interviews, teacher-student meetings between, and and during a retreat, watching, you know, kind of learning by watching how how they're done. And um, this man walked in to the interview, sat down, and he explained uh, that he's a lawyer. And in his particular firm and field of law, uh, he was expected to lie. That was part of the deal. So he asked, with a completely straight face, like, this would be a good answer, like if you'd get a, get a real answer somehow to do this. He said, how can I be a Buddhist and lie at the same time? And the teach, a teacher uh, looked at him and said, you can't. 
So I don't know, you know, so I don't know what kind of law firm he was working for and what he was doing and why lying was an important aspect of it. I don't know that world so very well, um, even to evaluate it. But if you live a lot, if you live a, a life of a lie, that creates a certain character, it creates a certain momentum, it creates certain conditions in the world. If you live a life of honesty, it creates a different conditions. People who lie a lot have to kind of keep themselves closed and guarded, otherwise you, you know, you'll make a mistake. People who are honest don't have to be, they can live a life that's more, more open and, and, and at ease, I think. And so, what is it? So, so a variety of different intentions. If you spend your, your, all your, all your, much of your time intending to become wealthy at the cost of everything else, it's possible to get wealthy. But does that really create the character, create the person, create the kind of uh, uh, well-being that uh, is most meaningful? You can spend, it's possible to have a lot of, uh, spend a lot of time hating people. And what does that do for your character? So I was reminded recently, uh, today, of um, my teacher in Burma, who loved to tell stories. I don't know if love is the right word, but he was of a common practice of him, of tell stories of, um, of people who came to his monastery to meditate. And the stories he seemed to like the most were the people who um, had been soldiers or, um, uh, I guess they're called, I guess, guerrilla fighters against the Burmese government. Um, they both kind of eventually retire and become monks or come to the meditation monastery to meditate. And um, it's kind of a neutral zone. And these are people, he said, who had killed people and tortured people, did horrible things to people. And, um, and then he would describe what happened to them when they sat down to meditate. And when they sat down to meditate, that lived inside of them. What their actions, had, their actions and the intentions they lived by lived inside of them. And that was something that had to come, come, up, to the, come up to the forefront and they had to deal with it. And he liked to tell in kind of graphic detail, not the stories, but uh, how difficult it was for them to deal with what they had done and how to work through that. So what we act on, the intentions we act on, have consequences. So, um, so part of caring for ourselves, a very important part of care, loving ourselves, cherishing ourselves, is to be a caretake, caregiver, caretaker, of our intentions that we live by. To know what they are, both in the big intentions of our life, but also in the small intentions of how we have a conversation with a friend or um, you know, small actions of our life. What, what is the intentions we live by? What do we want to do? It, could be, it can seemingly be quite a trite example. Uh, wh- with what intention do you drive your car in the freeway, if you do drive a car in the freeway? Um, is it to get where you want to go as fast as you can? Is there greed and impatient? Is that the intention? What's fueling the intention? Um, is it to be a safe driver for yourself? Is it to be a safe driver for other people? Um, is it to be generous on the road? It's possible to be a generous driver. I'm often inspired by the people who are driving calmly and say, you go first. You know, they, they, they kind of like clearly are making space. And it's possible to drive many diff- with many different intentions it might seem like it's inconsequential. Who cares? No one's watching, you know. You're in the privacy of your car. Uh, why should you pay attention? The intentions you live by are consequential and you have a choice about that. And something as trite as maybe how you drive your car, I hope you can see you have a choice about how, what intentions you have in driving your car. But how often do we consider that? It's kind of a, maybe an automatic pilot what intentions we drive on. The, when I came back from the monastery, I'd been th- about three years at Tassaharam Zen Monastery, 
where the life was well choreographed. Uh, you, you were told how to stand, where to, how to hold your hands, when to bow, when to sit down, uh, how to eat, what to do first. You know, it was like, you know, the, much of the day was, you know, choreographed like almost like a dance, like a ritual that you had parts then into. So there wasn't a lot of choice. You know, the bell rings, you sit down. And you sit down a particular way and you sit up straight. The bell rings, you get up. Um, you walk out. You can't just walk out the door casually. You have to step across the door a frame uh, with a particular foot first uh, in relationship to where you are in the door frame. So you have to pay attention to how you're stepping across and it's choreographed, right? Or the meal comes and you, you have to pick up the, the food in a particular way and you have to clean the bowls in a particular way. And so it's a kind of a training, training through your body that's in Zen practice. So I, I enjoyed it. It was very meaningful for me. And then I moved back to San Francisco. <clears throat> and one of the surprises coming back to San Francisco out of the monastery was that um, life was no longer choreographed. And, um, and so suddenly I became very acutely aware that I now had to make a lot of decisions that were made for me in the monastery. And the example that really got my attention was the decision of how to sit in a chair. You think that that's a you know, minor thing, right? I mean, you sit in chairs all the time, you do without thinking about it. But coming out of the heightened mind- mindfulness, the heightened attention, the sensitivity, and the sense of intentionality, doing things intentionally out of the monastery, I was aware there were many choices of how to sit in a chair. Do I sit in a chair in a way that's comfortable for me? Do I sit in a, in a ch- in a, with the intention to sit being alert? Do I sit in such a way in a chair that I make the people I'm sitting with comfortable? If I sat upright like a good Zen student, uh, there's my, some of my friends would have been very uncomfortable because we were supposed to kind of like hang out. So do I sit back and to make comfortable? So there's many choices. So I went to the abbot one day. I had a meeting with him, interview with him. And I told him this. I said, you know, now that I'm back here uh, in San Francisco, I realize how many choices I have and it's no longer a casual thing to sit in a chair. I realize there's, there's choices I have, intentions I have, that I have to make decisions about. They never knew I made, had to make decisions and have intentions around sitting in a chair. And now his response to me was a surprise when I said that. What, when I said that, what he did was he reached, and, reached out as... We were sitting like this, you know, facing each other. That's what you do when you have Zen interviews. It can be a little bit intimidating. And um, so you're sitting there. It's very nice also, sitting there. And he reached out and shook my hand. <laughs> like, congratulations, kid. Uh, you know, it was actually quite nice. I felt like he, he was really, he thought, you know, he thought that was really significant for me. And so even something trite and small can have meaning and, it can have, and, and the small things build over time in one's life. So the second step of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha had is called right intention. And, um, and it's opposed to what he called wrong intention. And wrong intention, uh, I'll start with there, uh, he considered to be three things. And these are the primary wrong intentions. If, if, and again, the Buddhist path, the understanding of the Buddhist path, this Eightfold Path, is the path that the Buddha offered for a particular purpose. And if you're interested in this purpose, then it's, then it's particularly relevant, what he has to say. And the purpose is to become free of suffering. A monumental thing, to become really free, have this kind of uh, deep sense of well-being and peace that can come when there's no more suffering. So if you want, that's the purpose you want, and there's three intentions which you really want to avoid, wrong intentions. Uh, the first, he said, is lust. 
lust was not a good thing. Lust, I think, more can creates tremendous harm in our life. Uh, the other, he said, is uh, ill will. So to have ill will towards people. You cannot have peace. You cannot become free of suffering yourself if you're intending and living by ill will. And that's your intention. The, the third um, is the, uh, um, usually translated into English as cruelty, kind of intentions of cruelty. However, the word in Pali is himsa, and which some of us know the opposite, ahimsa, which means nonviolence. So the intentions of violence. So it's one thing to have ill will, where you, I hope that person trips over his shoelaces. Um, you know, that's ill will, right? But um, to have uh, intentions for violence, I'm going to hurt that person. That's a whole other thing, right? So those three intentions are clearly seen as interfering with a task of becoming peaceful oneself, of becoming free oneself. If you're uh, driven, lust is conceited. Lust, you know, is different than you know, desire for sensual pleasure or desire for um, even sexual activity. But lust is a kind of an addiction. And you're kind of, often people are caught in the grips of lust. And when I was a teenager, I can tell you stories, <laughs> which I won't. <laughs> of uh, being in the caught, caught in the grip of it, and um, so the um, you know there's not much peace there. You know I I've tossed and turned, and with my lust and couldn't sleep. So you know maybe maybe a few of you have had something similar. Nothing is bad, I hope. But um, the um, so the um, so uh, lust, ill will. Cruelty, lust, ill will, and intentions to harm. Right intention uh, is looks like the way it's defined is the opposite of those. Uh, for cruelty, it's uh, the opposite of that. Ahimsa is ahimsa, and that's usually um, uh, you know you could say nonviolence, but the Buddhist tradition takes the prefix a, the non nonviolence, to also imply the positive quality, and so uh, the Buddhist uh, tradition takes this to mean compassion. That right intention involves the intention to be compassionate. For ill will, it's the absence of ill will, but they take the opposite to be goodwill or loving kindness. So that leaves lust. And what's the antonym for lust? Hmm? Equanimity? What else? Contentment? It's nice to hear those ideas. I looked it up in the dictionary, antonym dictionary, and they had none. <laughs> there, were, there were no antonyms. So um, maybe those are you know, reasonable ones, but the dictionary was, didn't, didn't, know, didn't know about those two. <laughs> and the rest of you don't even know. You're not saying. <laughs> Renunciation. Well, you probably read the books, right? <laughs> so the, the way it's translated into English, usually, is the opposite of um, the lust part. Kam, the word is kamma in, in Pali, is, um, is nekama. And, but it, it sounds a little bit like nekama, kama, nekama. It sounds a little bit like the opposite. But it's, a kind of, uh, it's probably a little bit of a wordplay where they're, meaning, they're kind, of, kind of implying the opposite of lust. But they're also, uh, the word nekama means, um, uh, ki- more, more than renunciation, it means to go forth. Into the into the celibate life, uh, 
which, you know, for monastics that was the way. Uh, so you, uh, in English, usually translated as renunciation. But uh, I think it works if we think of renunciation, if we associate renunciation with the simplicity and ease and peacefulness that comes. So maybe like contentment or equanimity, that the opposite of lust is a certain kind of, you know, certain kind of letting go where what comes with it is certain kind of peace and well-being, ease is part of it. So the intention to let go into that kind of peace is kind of... So those three intentions are called the right intentions if you want to go on the path. The wrong intentions agitate. And there's no peace in those wrong intentions if you act on those intentions. So it's very clear that if what you want is peace, those go against the grain. If what you want is peace, then these three other ones are, are very significant ways to go forward towards that. Now, it's hard to, you know, you can't just kind of want to have an intention that all the time. And it might seem like very high standards. And let's go around now and think about compassion, loving kindness, and letting go all the time. Um, maybe so. Maybe it can be the f- a fundamental intention that you have in the background that you'd like to live by, that you think about regularly. What you think about regularly makes a difference. So even if you can't have the intention you can wish to have the intention. Even if you can't have the intention, you can't muster it up, um, it's possible to start uh, turning one's thoughts to start thinking about, well, what would it look like if I was compassionate? Or would it be a good idea? And what would it be like if I didn't yell at my kids? You know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe the alternative. Just start, just, uh, to actively start thinking about alternative ways of approaching a situation even if you don't feel like that way, that sometimes your heart follows your thoughts. And sometimes your thoughts follow your heart. So if your heart can't go first, try with your thoughts. Not to have positive thinking, not to cover over how you're feeling, but it's possible to just start thinking in a matter-of-fact way. And how could this be? And reflect in that way. And I know if, if I'm not being conscientious or being mindful of my own thoughts, what I'm thinking, I'm capable of thinking for quite a while some pretty unusual things that I, you know, don't particularly want to share with you. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but, you know, I'm pretty mindful of my thoughts and if I'm seeing that this is not a useful way to go, I don't really care for this kind of thinking. Uh, sometimes I'll just let go and see what else comes up. And sometimes I'll say, you know, I, I, I'm, you know I'm going to give a Dharma talk. Probably it's a good idea to think a little bit about what I'm doing. And so my thoughts will go down that line for a while. So, uh, so to, to start taking some responsibility or some creativity, some uh, intentionality around what are the intentions which we live by. And it's kind of fun to do. You can actually plan ahead and th- think ahead. Uh, you know, if you have a planner, look at your planner. I've done this for a while. I used to have a planner when I used to have a book planner. Um, and, um, and I used to look uh, at what I had scheduled for the day and rather than just kind of going ahead and doing those things, I would take a few moments to look at them and say, what intention would I like to have in those activities that I'm going to do? Um, get there on time. You know, I could do that. Um, do the shopping so I can come home. I can have the intention to go shopping. But it's a lost opportunity because you can infuse many activities with extra intentions that are nice, that are meaningful. Even like the intention to go shopping 
you know, uh, the intention is to get food and get home as quickly as I can. Or the intention is to get food, get home as quickly as I can, and try to uh, uh, relate to the store clerk in a kind way. To try to be in the store in such a way that the people I might encounter, that little bit, I can make their life a little bit easier and nicer. Smile or something. And maybe I'm not that successful. Maybe it's kind of hard to do that socially. But at least there can be the intention I go by that I'm looking out for. How can I do this? And at least I didn't crowd the person in line. At least I didn't judge them for all the donuts they bought. And what, you know, it's a cart full of donuts or something. Who knows? And, um, you know, uh, you know and, because, and I didn't because I, I set this intention going. Intentions are very powerful. And to plan ahead and set an intention... It's kind of like some, sometimes it goes under the, under the surface of the brain, the heart, and, and it kind of has a, it starts conditioning things. And it might be surprised how things come up. And this is particularly true for people who meditate. And this is a known phenomenon in, uh, in the Buddhist meditation world, that as, the, as a per- meditator becomes very concentrated, the more concentrated they are, uh, the more powerful uh, the workings of inten- intentions are. You can set an intention when the mind is quite concentrated and it will have, it'll work its way through the byways and highways of the mind, unseen ways, and come out and, and, and show up in, in ways. It's kind of like the idea that uh, some of you might know that you can maybe, uh, some people can, um, when they go to sleep at night, kind of make the resolve to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and lo and behold, they wake up at five o'clock or a minute before the alarm goes off. Something in there in the system knows. You're not thinking about it. The more still, more peaceful the mind is, more concentrated, the stronger that kind of route of intentionality, the cleaner that intention can work on you. So you have to be careful what intentions you have. Because if you have intentions which are going to cause harm for you and others, and you get concentrated, watch out how it comes, how it works its way through you. Uh, if you have good intentions. So... Plan ahead. It can be fun. I found it quite fun and creative and, you know, half the time I failed at, you know, living by them. But it was really, it was really nice to think about it ahead. It was really nice to, to think later, wow, I spent a little bit of time having some good thoughts about people, having good intentions. That was good. And I felt it slowly uh, increased the, the muscle of intention so that it became something that becomes a, a more important part of my life. And then the final thing I want to say about this thing about intention, the second path, the right intention, the second part of the Eightfold Path, is that um, lust, ill will, and cruelty are generally done towards others. It's possible to do it to yourself, but generally it's, you know, it's how you relate, not you, but how people relate to people. Um, uh, this may be renunciation if it's meant to be non-lust, uh, uh, relates to people, how you live in the world with others, but certainly the other two, goodwill and compassion. And so the right intention that the Buddha was encouraging us to develop had to do with intentions about how we live in the world, in our, commu- in our collective world, our social world. And, it, and since it's very early on in the Eightfold Path, it indicates, it shows, that a really important and fundamental aspect of Buddhist spiritual life is not sitting in your room with your eyes closed meditating. That comes later, according to the path, this description. But rather has to do with establishing healthy and beneficial relationships to the world that you live in. And that living, and that's a part of the path. 
cleaning up your, uh, your relationship to other people, cultivating good intentions for how to live in the world, and then living by those worlds, th- those ways. And so the next three steps of the Eightfold Path continue to be about how we behave in the world, how we behave in the social world. It's so important. Half the steps of the Eightfold Path have to do with how we live in the world with other people. It's not only an inter- internal, inner transformation and change, but it also has to do with how we are in the world. And so the next step in the Eightfold Path, which we'll talk about next week, uh, not next week, but the following one, is right speech, and then after that is right action, which has to do with ethical and integrity, and then right livelihood. So um, intention sets the stage. The intention you live by is the guide then for, um, with those intentions, the guide for how are you going to speak? Evaluating, what's the, what's the, how do you want to speak? How do you want to act? How do you want to have a livelihood? So intention is, here is, is quite important. So I hope that makes, made some sense, that you followed that. It's, um, uh, it's one of the things that I found very, very meaningful in my life is to uh, pay attention to intention and work on it. And, um, and the last thing, I guess, I, said, I, already said, I already said I would say the last thing. Am I allowed to say one more thing? I said the last thing. This is the appendix. I hope I'm not going on too much. It's kind of hard sometimes to know how much to speak because in ordinary life, you don't carry on these monologues. <laughs> you know, it's usually not considered socially right, you know, to go on and on and on. And somehow, somehow, somehow I ended up in this profession where I'm allowed to just go on and on, the captive audience. And so sometimes I never, I'm not quite sure. Is this okay? <laughs> and, and then if I ask, you know, what are you going to say? So, uh, so my appendix. Um, uh, after I, so I was, I was a, a, a practitioner at the San Francisco Zen Center for many years. And then I went to Southeast Asia and practiced this tradition here, uh, Vipassana, the Theravada tradition. And uh, one of the differences was in, in, um, in Zen, we did a lot of meditation, but we almost never talked about what happens in meditation. It's like, that's not part of the conversation. Like, you're not supposed to talk about it almost. It's almost like taboo. You're supposed to meditate, but don't talk about what happens in meditation. But in, in the Southeast Asia, that's what we, in meditation monasteries, that's what we talked about. And we, got, we, we, we learned how to talk about it, how to, to understand our experience. Um, the teacher was very keen to learn about our experience, gave advice and feedback and, and teachings around our meditation experience. So there was a, there was a whole kind of like maps and whole uh, deep understanding of meditation that uh, I had never seen it uh, the Zen Center. So I was a priest at Zen Center and I came back and I um, went to a priest meeting of all the priests at Zen Center. And um, so I had the gumption to raise my hand and say, you know, why is it that we never talk about meditation here? You know, and we don't, you know, why is that? And um, no one said anything. <laughs> there was no response. No. That was, no. But then later, privately, one of the most senior teachers came up to me and said, Gil, I'll tell you. At Zen Center, Zen practice, what we focus on is purifying our intention. And if we purify our intention, everything else follows. So rather than focusing on the details of the hindrances and the breath and all that, um, that'll take care of itself if you set your intention right. 
And that was a, I, I think it's true. I think it's a very powerful teaching. Um, and I really appreciated that, the getting that answer a lot. So, um, so um, care for yourself a lot. You're important. You're very important as a person. And, uh, and because you're so important, one of the things you can do for yourself to care for how important you are is to take care of your intentions you live by and try to live by the best intentions that are possible for you. And part of the appendix to appendix, since it's wrong intention to be have ill will and cruelty to yourself if you don't live up to your intentions. So have right intentions about failing your intentions. Have compassion, have goodwill, and try to do better. Make sense? Isn't that a nice path? It's kind of self-correcting. So next week I won't be here. Uh, or maybe I'll be here, but I won't give the talk. Uh, next week we're, uh, uh, we're going to have this amazing woman who's going to come and uh, speak. She's a teacher. She's a, a, a Theravadan nun uh, who um, is, uh, has a little place, monastery, in, in uh, North Carolina. And when I met her about a year and a half ago, she was like this bright light for me. Quite unusual. Um, had a very rich and wonderful life. Uh, she started off in life uh, you know, being a devout Christian and became, I think, a, a minister and African-American, so kind of African-American church kind of thing. And was a real estate developer and a real estate broker and mortgage person and was, you know, was up against Donald Trump and, you know, quite an amazing person. And, um, and then, uh, uh, I mean, she should tell her own story. She has this amazing life story. And, um, but she's very different. You know, as a Theravada nun, most of the Theravada nuns we meet who are quite beautiful, the ones who come and teach here, um, they have, they come out of both the Western and also as Asian Theravada tradition where there's a certain kind of reserve to how they are. Maybe a beautiful reserve, a certain kind of reserve. She does not have this. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and she is this powerhouse. So her name is Venerable Panawati. And I just think she's really great. So it's a real treat, really special that she's going to be here. And um, so, you know, I recommend you come and hear this. Um, I, hear, I, I listened to one talk of hers, and, um, and not live, but I listened to it on Dharma Seed, and it was two hours long. So I don't think she's going to get away with that here, at nine, nine o'clock at night. And she's going to be talking to different groups before us in the Bay Area. I can't imagine by the time she gets to us, she hasn't gotten, the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. But you, could, you, could, I, you can always leave at nine o'clock. If that's what goes on, or we'll figure out a way to um, stop, and then people want to stay can stay with her, and uh, and hang out with her. But uh, she's a treasure, and so I hope I would like it'd be very nice if you get to meet her and get a sense, get a hit, get a, a, a impression of what she's like, uh, Venerable Panawati. So thank you very much. <laughs>